0: So anyways, we are in 2 Corinthians. Last week we, we began the book and, and one of the things that we said is that this book is unique in the sense that it's Paul's most personal letter. As he pours out his heart he's been hurt by a church that, that he's begun. It's going to be one of the hardest books to, to outline. And um, in this time as we get into some of Paul's hurt, it's going to be very difficult for you and I to really feel what Paul was feeling but the truth is every one of us have been hurt by somebody, and in this case Paul has, has poured his life out for a group of people, and, and uh, they've responded by accusing, rumors, making accusations about his character and things of that nature. And so what we're going to see as we travel through this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, especially in the first couple of chapters, is, is how Paul handles it when he's been hurt by the people that he cares the most for. It's one thing to be hurt. It's another thing to be hurt by other believers. And again, uh, people that you care very much for. So although we might not feel Paul's pain every one of us have been through a situation where some bad things have been said about us we've been hurt by other people. So it's going to be a little bit different uh, this week and maybe the next week as we as we travel through. And I think it's important also to realize that that As we we go through this, we're going to see Paul as he really pours out his emotion and and the hurt that comes out, and the criticism and the accusations, and and even the slander. And so, the, the thing that grabs me is that if this happens to Paul the apostle, then we shouldn't be surprised in our lives as we're walking with the Lord and somebody does that to us. And so, we'll see that as we travel through. But we've called this today, How to Handle a Hurt. And uh, last week we began talking about how God uses difficulty in our lives to grow us, to grow us, and He uses the difficulty in our life to to be a comfort to other people. And where we ended last week is that as Paul surveys this situation and the conflict that he's in, the first thing that he does is he does some self-examination. And uh, from last week, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 12 through 14. If you weren't here, you want to underline a couple of things because before Paul does anything, he examines himself, and that's just a good thing to do. Verse 12, he says, of chapter 1, he says, For our good, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, and last week we underlined the word conscience, that in holiness, and I've underlined that word this week, and in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted, and last week we underlined that word, conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you for we write, and I want you to underline, we write, nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us that we are your reason to be proud, as you are also ours, in the day of our Lord Jesus. And so, last week, as we we talked about this, we 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 uh, highlighted the fact that Paul was they were they were making accusations and they were saying he's insincere. And so Paul says, "No, we acted in sincerity." And and uh, they were saying you are acting in fleshly wisdom, and some of your bibles bibles would say worldly wisdom, and Paul says, "No." We're, you know, we, we did none of that. There, were, there was no manipulation on our part. So he's examining himself. And so, so three things that we highlighted last week, let's just write them down and then we'll, we'll move on. But Paul says, the first thing I did is I checked my conscience. And in verse 12, I had you underline that. And the idea is, he says, you know, my conscience is clear. I went before the Lord and I said, Father, is there anything that, that, that's nagging back there that I didn't handle this in the right way? He says, no, everything's clear. Uh, Peter would write there in your outline, He says, and keep a good conscience, and you want to underline that there in your outline, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So Peter agrees that as you serve the Lord and as you're walking through life, there's going to be some who are going to uh, see something and they're going to slander, they're going to revile, it's just part of it. So you want to make sure that your conscience is always clear, and that is you're going before the Lord and you're saying, Father, is there anything? I want to make sure that I'm who I need to be before the Lord. Then Paul says, so then I I checked my conduct. And we saw that in verse 12 and I had you underline that. Did I do something? Did I operate in a way that didn't represent the Lord? He says, no, I I acted in, in holiness. And one of the things that commentators will point out is that the Christians there in Corinth were very used to ministers coming in who were very controlling and manipulative. And so when they didn't understand something about Paul, they just assumed the worst about him. And so he says. So I checked my conduct; there was nothing there. And uh, then number three, you want to write down? He says I checked my communication. Now in that case, he says in verse thirteen, he says we write nothing else to you, other than what you can understand. So he says, you know, there was no hidden meaning in anything that I wrote. I went back, I looked at it, and uh, everything there was on the up and up. So, so as he says that. He's able to say, I know that on my part I did what I needed to do before the Lord. And so so as they go forward, now you say, so what's the accusation? Why, why, Why are they all up in arms? Well, there on your outline, for those of you who've been studying with us, we went through 1 Corinthians and now we're in 2 Corinthians. The last chapter of 1 Corinthians, a couple of weeks ago we looked at it, Paul made a promise to this church. And he says this there in your outline. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter. Now, the the thing is they were expecting that, but it just didn't work out. Things things came up. So in verse 15 and 16 in 2 Corinthians chapter one, he says, verse 15, he says, now it's in this confidence that I intended at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass on your way, and then then uh, underline this, into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So the idea is I, I was planning on coming there. I wanted to come there two times, but, but it didn't work out. So go ahead and write this down. The accusations began when something didn't work out as planned. So it didn't, they thought it was going to happen this way, but it didn't work out. So now the accusations, you know, you promise, you know, we can't trust what you say. You, you, know, you don't keep your word, that sort of thing. And, and that happens sometimes. And, and uh, anytime you've ever launched out and said, this is what we're going to do. And it doesn't happen. You know, I, I feel Paul's frustration. Let me give you a case in point. The um, Many of you who've been coming to Calvary for some time, you'll know that it was in 2011 that we were in two services in in this building, and we had the opportunity to buy the seven acres just behind where where right now we're parking on the seven acres. And uh, we decided to rezone that so we could build on that piece of property. So we started the process. We were told it's going to take about a year. We'll have it rezoned, and then we can build. Well, what took place is as the church continued to grow, we came up to a year, and uh, through events at the county, we did everything that we could do. The, uh, it came up, and they said, "Well, you're going to need at least another six months before this is rezoned." And uh, and then after that six months, I said, "Well, we're about six months away from having it rezoned." Did I mention that we built the, that we bought that in 2011? So so it's 2016. So about every six months, you know, we're, we're doing all of our all that we can do, and God's growing the church. So we were in two services. And then uh, a year or so later, we went to two services and two auditoriums and uh, God continued to grow the church. Last year, we went to three services and two auditoriums and God continues to bring people to this church. But we keep being told from the county that it's just about three months, six months, and, and then we'll be there. Well, it was in the end of May of this year for those of you who are on our email list, I sent out an email and I said, We have been assured that in June we are going to be rezoned. Everything is just a rubber stamp. Everything has been approved. We're so excited. We're waiting to commission the architects. And, um, and so the last week of May, once again, something happened. It had nothing to do with us. But uh, for those of you who've ever worked with the, the county, um, so anyways, so so now we're at that place where uh, I can't tell you, is it six weeks? Is it six months, and you know what what is it and it's one of those things where you know i I'm, I'm frustrated that it, that it hasn't worked out Now, you guys have been very, very gracious, nobody's said you know anything unkind that that we haven't had it completely figured out at this point. But, but I feel Paul's frustration when you, when you say, we're going to do this, and uh, this is how it's going to go, and all of a sudden something happens that's beyond your control, and, and there's nothing that you can do about it. In Paul's situation, it was the believers who took that and they began to make accusations against him because it didn't work out. In this case, it wasn't that Paul wasn't hearing from God. It wasn't that he didn't have enough faith. It wasn't that he didn't work hard enough. It wasn't that he didn't do, do more. It's just that God had another plan. So sometimes you, ex- you expect things to work out, but you know they, they don't. In this case, there's hurt on both sides. There's hurt on the church's side because they had expectations, and they were looking for Paul to show up, and they were excited about that, and then he doesn 't show up and uh, and so they began ha- launching accusations, and Paul is hurt because when it didn 't work out, they didn 't assume the best about him; they assumed the absolute worst, and that 's what 's coming out in this verses eighteen through twenty he says, "But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no, we don 't do one thing, you know, say one thing and do another." For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now that's a mouthful there. And uh, you come to verse 20, and uh, again verse 20 says, For as many as the promises of God in him, they are yes yes, and therefore also through him. And it goes on. So in, in the context, what Paul is saying, and I want you to write this down as Paul's saying, you know, we're not yes and no, we mean to be yes, but here's what he's saying. The promises of God are solid, but my best plans are always subject to change. If I say I'm showing up, I'm really going to try. You take what God says, that's solid, but sometimes my, my plans don't, don't, always, uh, don't always come about. Now it's at this point where I can move on and uh, just keep going, but there's that phrase that says the promises of God are yes in Him. You know, and, and some of your Bibles will say it a little bit different. And the question that comes out of that is that are all the promises that God has made, are they all yes for me, do they all apply to me? And so I, I feel like if I don't at least talk about this for a minute, I'm going to get a bunch of emails. So we're going we're to talk about this. The context is that what I say, that might change what God says never changes. So uh, when you think of God's promises, and, and that, that's the question, do, they, do all of them apply to us and, and, and uh, how does that work out? Again, very quickly you always want to ask yourself and write this down, does this promise apply to me? Does this promise apply to me? God's given a lot of promises. Uh, here, here's one that we need to say, does this apply to me? Uh, God comes to Abraham there in Genesis 15 and uh, he says, he took him outside, God takes Abraham outside and says, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he says, so, so shall your descendants be. So Abraham, your descendants are going to be as, as many as the stars. Well, that's a promise that God gave specifically to Abraham. Is that a promise for me? is that a promise just for Abraham? Well, I would say the promise for you is God's going to give you as many descendants as, as he wants to give, but that was a specific promise. So I, I, I would suggest that you don't walk around claiming that promise as though it's for you. And uh, so, so does that make sense? Now, an- another thing I would want to say is that when we go to promises, you always want to take the whole promise. We as believers are notorious for taking half of a promise and we forget usually the line that's either before it or after it that puts it into context. For instance in Philippians 4 there's this great verse that says, it's not on your outline, you have to look it up later. It says that my God shall supply all of my needs or your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Everybody, you've heard of that? Now what we forget is the line that's just before that, the line that's just before that. Hopefully you're curious and you'll go find today when you go home, what is that line that's just before that? It's in Philippians 4, look it up. But here, I want to give you a a verse today that's a great verse, it's a great promise, but many times we forget what's before it and what's attached to it. So here's one that God gave to the nation of Israel, and we use this all the time, I think rightfully so, but we need to remember a couple of things. The nation of Israel at this time had gone so far away from God and some things that, that and they're they're saying things like, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then God will restore. And God says, you know what? I'm not doing that right now. You've gone too far. Here's what I am doing. And so in this case, in Jeremiah, he says this there in your outline. He says, this is what the Lord God says. When 70 years, underline 70 years, are completed for Babylon, underline Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise and bring you back into this place. Now you might not have heard about that part of the promise, but we've all heard about the next part of the promise. He just goes on, he says, for I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Have you ever heard of that promise? So here's what we forget. God says, I do have a plan for you, but you've done some things. And uh, because you've done some things, here's my plan. First of all, you're going to go to Babylon. It's going to be a very, very difficult existence. You're going to spend 70 years there as a nation. But I want you to know, even in the midst of that, I have a great plan for you. After 70 years, I'm going to bring you back into this land. So how do we apply that to us? Well, many times what we do is in the midst of our difficulty, we begin to proclaim that I know the plans that I have for you. And we say, God's going to do this. Well, that might not mean in the next 15 minutes. For them, it meant 70 years before that would be realized. So if we use this promise today, and certainly God gives us this promise today, and God's plans are always good, but that doesn't mean that we're immune from the difficulty and sometimes even the consequences of our own behaviors. And so if this verse if we were to take that, don't forget that he also attached 70 years, which means that for some of us, if uh, that was lived out, that good plan might not be realized completely until we're in eternity. And then that plan is really great. Now I believe that God uses this in many of our lives to tell us that there's great things in store for us. But make sure you always look at the whole promise, not just half the promise. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's a great promise, but you just want to make sure that you understand the whole promise. It doesn't mean immediately. In their case, it was going to be a while. Now in one place or several places Paul will use the Old Testament promise as the basis for New Testament believers. For instance there in your outline he says, he himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I forsake you so that we confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? And one of the things that you notice there is that the font is changed. When you're reading through your Bible and the font is changed that usually means that they're now quoting from the Old Testament. And this is an Old Testament promise. I put the address there. It's Deuteronomy 31, six, and, and Paul says that promise applies to you and I as believers. We can all say the Lord is with me. He'll never leave me. I'm not to be afraid. I'm not to be discouraged. What can man do to me? So it's a, it's a great, great promise. He never leaves us. Now when it comes to the promises, and here's the good news. Uh, Paul would say this there in your outline. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's the mediator of a better covenant, underline that, better covenant, speaking of Jesus, which has been enacted on better, what's that word? Promises, promises better promises. Why is it a better covenant? In the Old Testament, when you blew it, <laughs> you, know, you blew it. This is a better covenant because it has nothing to do with what you do or did. It has to do with what he did, so you can't even mess this up. That's why it's a better covenant. Also, the promises that He gives us are better than the ones even in the Old Testament. It's better, better promises. So, what does that mean? Well, I'll close with this verse there in your outline. In Peter, First Peter uh, one, actually Second Peter one, he says His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And uh, many of us have 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 memorized that part through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us, and I underline this, His precious and magnificent promises, so that, and I want you to underline, by them, by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. God has given to us as New Testament believers, believers in Christ, he has given us what He calls precious, mag- uh, precious uh, magnificent and precious promises depending on, on your translation. and uh, Precious and magnificent promises. Those promises are given so that you and I can become partakers of what He calls the divine nature. It, it, and here, here's how it works. You, you have a situation in your life and you find a promise that speaks specifically to that situation. And the way that you become a partaker of the divine nature is you have that promise and you say everything in my world is contrary. Everything says it's not going to happen, but the promise says this. And you make the decision that you're going to believe what God says over all of your circumstances. That's where you become a partaker of the divine nature. And that's where you see God step in and you begin to have those God stories where God shows up because you chose to believe the promise over the circumstance. Does that make sense? Now, this is where many go through their entire life and they have no or very few God stories because they choose when their back is against the wall to believe their circumstances. Over the promise, do you remember last week we were talking, and as we talked about how God takes those problems, those challenges that that we face, and he talked about it's in that patient enduring when we decide to patiently endure, it flips the switch and it energizes god 's comfort in our life and one of the things that we shared is that for many many professing believers when they come to that place where they're going to have to walk through a time of difficulty, they never come to the place where they say, I will patiently endure. Instead, they're frantic, freaked out, and frustrated. And we see that. And so they never experience God's comfort. In the same way, when it comes to God's promises, the way that we become partakers of the divine nature is we take that promise and we say, I'm trusting what God says, over that. That's where God steps in and that's where you have those miracle stories. I can tell you that for for Cheryl and I in our difficult times when our back has been against the wall one of the things that we begin to do is we find the promise and we talk about all the times in the past where God has shown up in, in, in ways that can only be described as God showing up. I want that for you. You want that for you and God wants that for you. We're going to move on. Verse 21, he says, now speaking of a promise that you can take to the bank, he says, verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Some of your Bibles would say down payment, some would say surety, but pledge is the idea. So there on your outline I've put that verse 21 from the NIV. He just says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. So here's the big, for instance, the promise that, that, that would be from God that's always yes. The promise of salvation is secure. That's the idea. It's a promise given to us. You can't mess it up. When you're saved it's because you're the one. He makes you stand in Christ and uh, he's the one who seals you. You had nothing to do with that. It's all on him. So he keeps you, you don't keep him. And so every time Paul has the opportunity to talk about how secure you are as a believer, he takes that opportunity. My kids aren't always good, but my kids are always mine. Nothing ever changes the fact that they're my kids. Although I've had a few thoughts a few times. Verse 23. He says, But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, underline spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. We'll come back to that verse. Verse 24, my favorite verse not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. You are standing firm. I, I love this verse and what's going on here is that Paul says you know, we don't lord it over your faith. Apparently some false teachers had come into Corinth and they were becoming like dictators to the church, ruling over them. Paul says that's not how we do it. We, we come alongside to share with you with your joy and your faith as you stand firm. And so um, this verse has been a mantra for our ministry from the very beginning. We're, we're kind of a hands-off ministry. We want to come alongside if we can help in any way. But it's your faith as you stand firm and we want to be sharers of your joy, not controlling you or your lives or anything else. So there in your outline, just write this down and we'll, and we'll uh, move on. In life and ministry, Paul decided to never be controlling and always to hold people with an open hand. He says, We don't we don't lord it over your faith, we're just sharers of your joy as you stand firm in your faith. So here here's what that means for us here here at Calvary as we practice this. We don't we don't tell you who to marry, we don't tell you what car to buy, we don't tell you what house to buy, that you know, whatever you do, you do. Now if somebody comes in for premarital counseling, and this has happened a few times. You know, you, they come in and they're fighting like cats and dogs in, in premarital counseling. At the end of it we'll say, you know, I don't know that you guys really should get married. I mean, if you're fighting this much, you're probably going to kill each other once you get married. And for those of you who've ever been married, you know that whatever issues are, they're amplified when you get into marriage. So, you know, take a, take a step back. And sometimes they'll say something like, well, what happens if, if we just decide to go get married? You know, are you going to excommunicate us from the church? Like, no, we're not going to do it. We're, we're shares of your joy. We're not here to, uh, to lord it over your faith. You, you're the one who has to stand from in your faith. All it means is, is if you marry this person, <laughs> you have to live with them. You know, we don't have to live with them. So, so it's 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 to you. You know, we'll still come alongside of you and be be there for you. But it's you know, there's there's that. So um, so uh, years ago, we were back at the high school, and I can always tell I've been around the church block, you might say. So a different theological circles. And I can always tell very quickly which somebody's background is. And so this lady walks up and she has her children. I kind of knew her background as they were all dressed like pilgrims. And so she comes up and she says, she does this umbrella thing. She says, pastor, we're here, we're part of your church, and we are under the umbrella of your authority. So anything that the Holy Spirit tells you to tell us, you know, uh, we want you to speak into our lives. I'm always polite on the outside, but on the inside I'm like, lady. And this time I was like, lady, I got six kids at home. I'm just trying to make it through the day. I can barely manage my own life. There's no way I'm going to step in and, you know, and, and uh, run your life too. So uh, we don't do that. I mean, now we have 12 kids, so it's, you know, we, we've been busy. So, so the thing is, we're just shares of your joy. And Paul says that's how it is. Now, that's how it's to be. So, so let me just say one thing. We're going to move on. If you ever go to another church, take this verse with you. Take this verse with you. And make sure that you're part of a church where they are sharers with you of your joy as you stand firm. But if it's a controlling thing, just be very, very wary. Be very, very careful of that. We're going to move on. Chapter two, verse one. Remember, chapters and verses weren't added for a thousand years. So it just continues. So Paul says, but I determined, and in my translation, it says, for my own sake, my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. I would not come to you in sorrow again. So Paul says, for my sake, my own sake. Now go back to chapter one and go to verse twenty-three. And so in verse twenty-three of chapter one, he says, "But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you." Does your Bible say something like that? So in that case, is like in, in verse one of chapter two, he says, "It was for my benefit I didn't come there." But in, in chapter one, he says, no, it was really for your benefit. So it was your benefit and my benefit that I did not show up there. And uh, so, so why, why is that? Go ahead and, and write this down, that Paul decided that giving some space was best. In this situation, we needed to give some space. Paul had discerned that the tension was so great that it was best for everybody to just give a little space and let things settle down before we run in there and try to fix it. In our Christian world, we're typically taught that immediately you get in there and you try to work it out. That's great. But sometimes, and you have to discern when, you know that if you're going in right now, even though you might have the best heart, that doesn't mean that they have the best heart. You might be willing to work it out, that doesn't mean that they are. Sometimes, you just have to give a little space. Often, we're told verses like this there in your outline. In Ephesians 4, it says, Be angry and yet do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger underline that your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity in conflict all you can control is your response all you can control is your anger you can't control the other person's response or how they process so all you can do is control your your side and sometimes when you're dealing with somebody and they're not ready, the worst thing that you can do is try to run in and try to fix it because it just turns into a greater blow up. There was a time, um, how many of you have ever heard of, you've heard of Paul and Barnabas, anybody ever heard of Paul and Barnabas? And then you've heard of Paul and Silas, how many have you ever heard of that? So, you, so you've got this Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. What they are is two different missionary trips, in one Paul goes with Barnabas, and one he goes with Silas. Well how did it come about that Paul and Barnabas separated and then it's Paul and Silas? Well in Acts, the book of Acts in uh, the 15th chapter, Acts is the history book of the New Testament. It tells what what happened. Here's what it says. There in your outline it says there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and left. And some of your translations as you read that, if you were to look it up, it would say the disagreement was so great they couldn't even speak to one another. So here you have Paul and Barnabas, two pillars of the faith, and they come to this place and and the disagreement is so sharp that they realize I need to serve the Lord, you need to serve the Lord, but right now what we disagree on is so great that we cannot serve the Lord together. And so they separated and they went on and they served the Lord. And as you read the story, uh, you'll find that later on as things cool down and God begins to work in both of their hearts, you realize that there is restoration of relationship and, and that takes place. But for a season, they needed to just give some space if Paul and Barnabas needed to give some space, every once in a while God's going to allow you and I in a situation where the best thing that we can do is just say, well I'm I'm just going to give some space right now. Now before we jump to the conclusion that in every conflict I just give space and run away we're going to go to verse 2. Let's see how it works out. Verse 2 he says, now for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing, and I want you to underline, I wrote you so that when I came I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Verse four with your pen in hand. Paul says for out of much affliction, underline that, and anguish, however your Bible says it, of heart. I wrote, underline I wrote to you. With many tears underlying that. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Underline that, the love that I have especially for you. So in, in those days, Paul couldn't Paul couldn't send an email. He, he couldn't pick up the phone. He couldn't hop on the turnpike and go see them. So he did what he knew to do. He wrote a letter and that letter came to them. That letter was to express, guys you're saying this but this is how I really feel and I'm expressing how much I want to work this out, how much I really love you as a congregation. Some of the people in the congregation, they received it. But for some of them that just fueled the fire for their accusations. So it wasn't that Paul didn't try to work it out. He realized that in his trying to work it out tensions just increased. And so because of that, he says, I need to take a step back. We're going to let things cool off and then we'll revisit that later on. Does that make sense? So I want you to go ahead and write this down. One of the things that he did when you communicate, and that's what he says, I I wrote this so that you might know the love which I have, especially for you, that we notice that he, write this, reaffirm your love, but speak the truth. He says, I wrote you to tell you how much I do love you, how much I want to work it out, how much I care. And uh, for some, it it just infuriated them, inflamed (laughs) them. Verse 5, he says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So there's something that needs unpacking here. There is the debate. Paul is talking about someone who was put out of the church and uh, they had, the majority had thrown the, this person out. Now, Bible scholars are divided. Some think that it's the guy who was back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was having an immoral relationship with his father's wife. And Paul said, throw the guy out, he won't repent, throw him out. Others hold that, no, this is a guy who is a false teacher in the church and he's been stirring up trouble and, and creating all types of problems for Paul and uh, ultimately they put this guy out, whether it's the immoral guy or it's the, 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 a false teacher. Uh, whatever it is, whoever it is, they have not let the guy back into the church. So Paul says in verse 7, he says so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So write this down. Apparently this guy has repented so that when there's repentance, uh, give forgiveness and restoration in fellowship. When there's repentance, give forgiveness and restoration in fellowship. So whether this guy is the false teacher or he's the guy who was in an immoral relationship when he's repented and so now it's time to restore him back. Now the reason I had you write down the word fellowship is that when you restore somebody to fellowship, that doesn't necessarily mean that you restore the guy to a trusted relationship. You can have fellowship with somebody, but that doesn't mean that you trust him. So if it's the guy in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians who was having an affair with his father's wife, you can restore him after he's repented in fellowship. He can come back to be part of the, the church, but you probably don't want him leading your singles ministry. You don't want him to lead a, a ladies' prayer group or anything like that. So, so there, there's, not, you know, there's, there's not the trust, but there's fellowship. If he's a false teacher and he's been stirring up trouble and now he's repented, you can let him in, but you wouldn't want to put him in a situation where he could be teaching other people, leading a small group, because trust isn't there. So fellowship is something that can be restored quickly, but trust is something that takes some time before it can be restored. And there are some relationships, and the reason I say this is that there are some relationships that some of you have been in, some of us have been in, where we've been hurt deeply. And we're taught that when we forgive this person, that means that when we restore them to fellowship, that means that we have to now bring them back to the level of relationship that we had before. And that's not the case. That's not the case. Fellowship and trust are two very, very different things. Does that make sense? Now, verse 8, he says, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you, underline, forgive anything, I forgive, underline that, also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, underline that, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Do you notice a pattern there? Forgive, forgiven, forgive, forgiven. And then verse 11, he says, so that no advantage, underline this whole verse, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And this is the verse I want to take just a moment to talk about. If you've ever read anything on spiritual warfare, it always brings you back to this verse. Don't let Satan take advantage of you. We are not ignorant of his schemes. We've all heard that. And uh, much on spiritual warfare is written about that. But we also notice that Paul's talking here about forgiveness. So it's forgive, forgive, forgive. And so here's what I want you to write down. Satan's schemes, at least in this passage, are related to unforgiveness. Satan's schemes are related to unforgiveness. One of the, Satan's greatest schemes is to get us into a place, we've been wronged, we're holding on to the wrong, we're not forgiving, we're becoming bitter, and, and, and it, it's a scheme of Satan, and he uses it, and we, we've all been there. Am I the only person who's been there? So, so here, here's what I've learned about forgiveness. Forgiveness is two things. First of all, it's a decision, and it's a process. It's a decision and it's a process. You know, when you decide to forgive, that's not for their benefit. What I've learned from the people who've hurt me in my life, they've gone on. They're living their life. But I'm walking around with this bitterness inside of me. So when I forgive, that's not for their benefit, that's for my benefit. I need to release them. Now, when I release them, when I don't give forgiveness, that turns into bitterness. And for me, that usually manifests itself by driving down the road, having an argument in my head with somebody who's not even there or even part of my life. And so you're driving down the road and you're like, and you're thinking about how you'd say it. And then other cars are driving up next to you and they're like looking at you. (laughs) I'm on my phone. Okay. Am I the only one who's ever done that? I am, aren't I? So so the idea is that, and, and if you've ever met somebody who's bitter, you know it, because whatever happened to them happened a long time ago, but every conversation comes back to that, and it's not long before they're reliving that whole event, and they never let it go. Now, here's the problem with bitterness. Here's the problem with bitterness. You never see somebody who's bitter who gets more healthy physically, mentally, or spiritually. When you give forgiveness, that's for you. It has nothing to do with them. They've gone on with their life. You release them. Now, when they repent, when they repent, now they can come back into fellowship. That is, we can go to the same church. We can recognize one another as as believers. We can be cordial. That doesn't mean that now you allow them back in to the same level of closeness that you might have had with them before because the trust isn't there. Now, if the Lord leads you to allow that trust to be rebuilt, that's one thing. The main thing is that you don't want to go through life with that bitterness. Now, when I was talking about bitterness and unforgiveness, I'm willing to bet that a person or a situation popped into your mind, somebody who hurt you greatly at some time in your life, that's the person, the situation that you need to forgive. Now, why do, why do I say it's a process? It's a decision and it's a process. You can decide to forgive. We can all decide right here today to forgive. But when you're driving home today and you've released that, just know that Satan's going to come alongside and he's going to whisper it back in and he's going to try to amplify that back in your mind. That's where it becomes a process. It's going to be a battle. You keep coming back to the decision. I'm choosing to forgive, I'm choosing to release. That's where I'm saying, Lord, you allowed this in my life. I'm trusting you, you do your work, but I've got to let this go because I have to go on with you. You release them, you release them. That makes sense? There's so much more we could say we're out of time. So I'm just going to go ahead and close in prayer. If that's you today and you're really struggling with that, and I know we can all tell stories of, of people who've harmed us and the bitterness that it's caused in our life, But if God brought that person or that situation to your life, that's the one. That's the one you got to deal with. You have to release that. and You can't go forward spiritually until you deal with that. And if you want somebody to pray with you, then I would encourage you after the service as we close in prayer, there'll be some people standing in the front. They would love to pray with you. But remember, it's, it's a decision and it's a process. You're going to have to make that decision for quite a while until it's, it's gone. I wish it was a one-time event, but it's a process. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for, for Paul's struggle and what he did and how he went through it. Lord, it's hard for us to get into what it is that Paul was feeling, but we know what we were feeling and what we are feeling. And so our prayer today, Lord, as, as Paul made the decision to forgive, that, Lord, you would allow us, you would help us, empower us to release and give forgiveness. Maybe there'll be a time when there'll be a restoration in fellowship. But right now we need to release so that we don't become bitter. We recognize that is Satan's scheme. And we don't want that for us. Father, I pray that you grow us in you. Help us to be the people you've called us to be and keep us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.